The Sarah Lawrence Theater Program works, learns, and lives on the land of the Lenape, Munsee, and Wappinger peoples. We pay respect to the ancestors past, present, and future. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College. After which, we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us. But how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances and projects and keep us up to date on what is next stay tuned for the performance lab podcast hello my name is andrew del vecchio i'm a graduating second year mfa candidate in theater at sarah lawrence college and today i am joined by kaneza shawl kaneza shawl works in theater opera and film and is based in new york city shawl's work has shown in divergent contexts from new york city basements to courtyards in vietnam to east african amphitheaters to European opera houses, to U.S. public housing, to rural auditoriums in the UAE. By creating performances that speak many formal, cultural, historical, aesthetic, and experimental languages, she seeks expansive audiences. The inclusion and collectivity inherent to Shaw's practice is fundamental to her pursuit of excellence. Domestically, her work has been shown at Brooklyn Academy of Music, L.A. Philharmonic, The Shed, The Kennedy Center, Walker Art Center, Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Red Cat, the New Victory Theater, New York Live Arts, Performance Space 122, New Orleans Center for Contemporary Art, Cincinnati Contemporary Art Center, PICA, and On the Boards. Shaw received a Guggenheim Fellowship, Herb Alpert Award in Theater, United States Artist Fellowship, Soros Art Migration and Public Space Fellowship, Ford Foundation Art for Justice Bearing Witness Award, and Creative Capital Award. Kaneza, how are you doing today? Noah, it is sunny. I'm at home in Brooklyn. I cannot complain. Perfect. That's great. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. Glad to be here. Uh, just to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about the Grad Lab seminar you led with us? Yeah, it was so exciting to be with y'all and on campus. I think I had to throw all of my plans out the window as soon as I got in the room because I encountered that Sarah Lawrence and all of your classmates and the artists in that space are wonderfully and with abandon <laughs> letting go of the silos of the theater and letting go of kind of i would say the 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 lies of western thought that have siloed disciplines and that have siloed roles within theater making and it really felt like each artist in the room is encountering their practice on their own terms so I got into the room and got to bring my own practice in a, in a, I would say, not a word I tend to use, but authentic way <laughs> um, in, in, in meeting this group of artists within my own practice directly. So I threw all of my plans out the window as soon as I saw you all, because I was like, oh, y'all are ready to talk. Y'all are ready to work. And we started with the simple and very challenging question of what do you do with this understanding that theater is an umbrella under which all of us were gathered. But even if we called ourselves directors or writers or multidisciplinary artists, you know, what each of us does is a product of our creative questions, our cultural questions, the, you know, our experiential questions and how are we bringing all of those together? So that was the anchor of our 
practice sharing. And something I absolutely loved about a conversation with you is you asked, what are you or what do you do as an artist? And sometimes that feels like a dissection when someone asks you that. But with you, it felt like a very much an invitation to discuss and discover. So I, I would love to know what you think about what the importance of knowing what you'd like to do and knowing who you are and also who you can be is to an artist. Yeah, I think defining that verb is is the core of one's engine. We don't live in a neutral world. And I think one of the great advantages of that room that we were in with you and all of your uh, compatriots is people aren't confused about that. <laughs> and so when we encounter an institution or when we think about what is the model of how we wanna practice, we are not doing that from neutrality. We live in a capitalist country, white supremacist country. <laughs> um, you know, we, we are not, we are not making from a, from a neutral landscape. And so the thing that was exciting to me with, with everyone in thinking about what do you do was an understanding that that's something you have to build for yourself, because to, uh, to accept the structures that exist is to accept what has built and to accept the structures by which making theater exists is to accept the structures that have built the processes through which making theater exists. And something I loved, and I might be, please correct me if I'm, I'm grossly simplifying, but something that I loved that you talked about, you talked about the structures that we are, we exist in and what we were told we need to do. You expressed that one day you just, you decided you wanted to do opera. It interests you and you did it. And it's amazing to look at your work and the stuff you did and you direct now. What was it like to have that moment where you're like, I want to do this, and then you did it, and the importance of sticking with that? I think that making great art requires speaking many languages, and that those are aesthetic and formal languages, and those are also cultural and historical and experiential languages and the materials of place and, and all of that. So beginning to work in opera isn't new. It is an extension of my practice and the questions I've been asking. I find opera satisfying because it's so big. <laughs> and it's this form that's made for bombacity and contradiction and violence and terror and horror and worlds being torn apart and worlds being rebuilt. It's this place that feels like it's big enough for real struggle, for actual struggle, for and 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 they can hold they can hold many ideas at the same time. And I, you know, the opera lost itself to lies of singularity and fixedness, Western storytelling. Um, by Western storytelling, I mean, the, the lies of the West that circulate around belief in fixedness or belief in singularity. But it's this form that you know, is dependent on all these different kinds of artists gathering. It's a, even the sounds we understand as classical sounds are these sounds that have come about over hundreds of years of cultural exchange. And so it feels like a place that is built from a kind of density of lexicons, a kind of hybridity, a kind of multiplicity, and needs to be returned to itself. So that's what excites me about it. And I love hearing you talk about it. It's very much, you, you mentioned it in this and you kind of mentioned it. And I, I read the uh, your comments in I'm tired of being your side bitch, which if anyone's listening to this, 
first of all, go check out all of Canezo's work and definitely read that piece as well. Um, but you spoke about opera being big and opera being in your face. Um, what about that brings you joy as an artist or form, I guess? I mean, I love when sound is functioning as architecture. I think that I think about that even, you know, from whether I'm working in a small basement in New York City or a East African amphitheater that extends onto a hill or, you know, an opera house, I think about how sound is the architecture for the bodies on stage. So that is very satisfying to me. This is a form that has thought about sound as architecture for bodies on stage for a long time. And it feels like it gets us back to the to the root of gathering, you know, this storytelling of gathering around campfires or places where voting and theater happen beside each other, demos kratia, you know, it feels like there's something about going to sound and story next to each other that feels like it gets to the heart of, of public assembly, <laughs> like why we gather with one another and, and tell each other stories and, and the way that culture is this act of remembering. I love that because selfishly, I was going to ask you about sound and music next anyway. So it's good to hear that because music is very important to myself and a lot of uh, creators I work with. Speaking of which, you talked about doing work in East Africa. Looking at all your work, you have such an amazing array of where you've been and where you've presented uh, nationally. Uh, I'm gonna hit not even all of them at all, but you're going to New Orleans, you're going to Connecticut, you're in New York, uh, you're in Ohio, and then internationally, you're you're in Europe, like Amsterdam, you're in Cairo, you're in Rwanda. What benefits do you think to you as an artist have you experienced by being able to perform in so many different places? I'm so excited about I'm so excited about legibility and context, right? I'm an artist who is committed to a pursuit of excellence that is based on speaking many languages. And when you are aiming towards that, density of information there it's like an invitation for everybody to eat but what languages are highlighted or forefronted has everything to do with who is invited to the feast and on whose behalf the feast was prepared so you know a piece that we um a piece that i made that is kind of translation into performance of an egyptian funerary text we premiere that in a in new york city and then we take that to Cairo, you know, and then we take that to Rwanda and then we take that to New Orleans. And each time that piece travels, it is in conversation with the humans who are gathering in that room, the land that it is happening on and the architectures of those vastly different spaces and playing and touching and working in that legibility and the, the preparing the feast precisely on behalf of the audiences I want to centralize. I think that having work making work that can travel and live in that many contexts is um is thrilling and and a way that i think any piece even if it's not going to travel i want it to be built with that richness and thickness of information that it could in your travels and in your creations do you have any do you have a story or any stories that um affected you as an artist or whatnot or the work that you made and maybe pushed you forward or in a direction yeah i mean i came up in the kind of new york experimental theater circuit and um and traveling as a performer to that you know the the like europe plus australia is kind of <laughs> that commissioning and presenting circuit so i i came up per performing in that and, and working in that 
environment and appreciating the cultural exchange that would happen and the value, the valuing of that exchange that was happening within that touring circuit. As a maker, one of the reasons I started making work is because I felt like I spoke more languages than I was being asked to use. And so I, I, in my performing life, and so I wanted to build a context for myself that I could speak as many languages as I speak and invest in those lexicons. And one of the things that I have pursued as a artist who makes work is touring work in the global South, particularly to platforms where there's an opportunity for South-South exchange. And that has meant building context for myself. And it also, there's also been this opportunity to um, kind of facilitate South-South exchange that by traveling with my work, I've also been able to, you know, have the artists in Cairo invited to the festival in Rwanda and vice versa, you know, artists who didn't know about each other, who weren't talking to each other. So thinking about how to facilitate South-South exchange and tour my work in the global South is kind of an ongoing creative inquiry and question. I feel like I lost track of the center of your question. Oh, Oh, a story. Oh, no, no. I totally remember a story. So yes, I was leading somewhere. So, you know, coming from like finicky downtown and I want the mic to be exactly right. And there's going to be this gradual increase of sound and it's going to be this delicate interplay between the sound designer who's on stage and the performer. You know, I had this moment that I had built into this performance of this, like the sun rises through this gradation of the exquisite tending of this performer's microphone and literally this performer into that microphone the sun rises through this performer's voice because of this intricate play with with technology and um i'm in rwanda in we're doing the performance for the first time in this glorious amphitheater the at the genocide memorial amphitheater you know it's a piece that's honoring my father it's a piece that's thinking about death and burial traditions. We're at the genocide memorial. It's a way to think about this incomprehensible loss of life that has touched everything about my existence. And the piece begins. And all of a sudden, like, there's all this like chattering about me. I'm like, we haven't even started. We've like just started and I've already like upset people or like what is happening? Everyone's like talking beside me. And then people start coming up to me and they're like oh do you need help we can we'll go we'll go we'll go fix the microphone do you need help I was like oh right like in a place where power is not consistent if you can't hear a performer on a microphone then some shit is in the microphone is broken you know what I mean so like this was a absolute artistic failure on my part in like my kind of assumption of technological consistency right that's like a that's a material in my room the idea that every time I use this mic the power is going to be on and it's going <laughs> to relate to the last time we asked the question and so that was one of those it was like a it was like a delightful and horrifying aha moment of oh yeah technological consistency is the power being on is an assumption in my practice. So if I am traveling to places where that is not an assumption, like how do I deal with the materials that are actually in the room and how do I look at how I am making things? Um, so yeah, that's a great story from being on the road about touring. <laughs> Amazing. Something I'd love to ask is, uh, especially with Sarah Lawrence, but artists in general, 
it's becoming more and more common for people to be like hyphenated artists where they do more than one thing. And clearly you, you have all these wonderful directing credits, but you're also a performer. So I'd love to hear about your feeling on the duality of that, the balance of it, uh, your enjoyment of being more than that one thing. Do you ever feel pigeonholed? Any of those things? I make stuff and I ask questions and sometimes that involves being on stage and sometimes it involves not being on stage. But the, the it, it's fast, like the, right, the, the hierarchy that is also embedded into those silos and the kind of, um, I mean, in, in some way, that's also the origin of all of the singular authorship stuff. So I think all of that siloing is also connected to some of the, the other stories of singularity around like singular authorship or the singular genius. And the fact is that that's just a denial of all of the other labor around any making practice. That is especially true of those of us who make theater, who create from collectivity and give unto collectivity. But honestly, I think that's true of any art form, even if it's somebody alone in a room. The fact is there's a bunch of labor that is supporting that act. Would you say that, I know someone who is nervously transitioning into being able to call themselves a performer writer after a long time of being just performer, would you say that it is a positive or has a positive effect on you as an artist to be able to be like, okay, what you're saying about like the silos being like, isn't just one thing. You're not just one thing. You don't have to be just one thing. Um, have you found that positive and freeing to kind of balk at the people who walk up and maybe say something to you about seeing you as a performer and being like, okay, all right. And then being just who you are as an artist. It's like, it's not good or bad. It's just true. And it's true for that other person that. too. They just are lying. <laughs> I love that. That's so much. <laughs> I love it. So especially again, released through Sarah Lawrence, but in general, I feel like experimental theater is becoming a bigger hotbed for creation and artists who are up and coming. What would you say were some of the positives you got by coming through experimental theater? I think I learned a lot of things. One of the things I learned was the importance of home, the importance of creative spaces outside of the institutional models. So outside of presenter, producer, residency models, what does it mean to have home? And that I definitely learned. I learned, I was drawn to experimental theater, whatever it means. In fact, I'm gonna define it. I was drawn to the theater built through a trial and error process over time because artists working in that process tend to be committed to formal hybridity on stage. And I was drawn to the formal hybridity in quote experimental theater. So that is how I ended up there. The other, the other thing that I would say is, you know, in work that is process-based, People are a little less obsessed with the lies of singularity and there's more acknowledgement of the collectivity inherent to practice. Not always a ton, but more. Which is not to say that singular, the singular leadership doesn't matter, which is not to say that a director is not an author, which is not to say that genius direction isn't awesome and wonderful and in existence. It's simply about acknowledging the bedrock of collectivity through which any theater practice happens. I think that in process-based forms, there's more appreciation and experiment with collectivity than in forms that have been defined by an in, in the institutional siloing. I guess one of the last things I'd like to ask you is, what are some of the pieces of advice you'd give new theater artists coming in right now, 
they're about to hit the ground running right out of college or or right out of whatever program they're in and they're they're ready to go what would you what are some of the things you tell them to do there is one thing i ask which is what do you want and take care of your desire because you have to find what is more interesting and more exciting to you than how terrifying everything else is and you have to invest deeply in that desire and deeply in what turns you on and deeply in what you're excited about because there's so much else from being an artist in a capitalist country to um, to your own personal demons, to the vulnerability of asking big questions, to the responsibility of asking big questions and telling stories in a, in a world in which the stories we tell about ourselves and each other build the world. The terror of holding all of that, what is more interesting to you than that? Man. I got chills. I don't even care if I seem like a biased interviewer right now. I got chills from that. So, <laughs> While we have like a couple more minutes, I'd love to ask, what are you currently working on? I just directed an opera about Omar Ibn Said, who was a West African Islamic scholar who was enslaved in Charleston, taken from uh, Senegal and ripped from his home and family in Senegal at gunpoint and brought to the United States. And there's a new opera about his life. And so I just directed that in Charleston and we'll take it to a bunch of other places, LA Opera next in um, a week or two. I head to Red Cat in Los Angeles where I will be performing in a piece that I've made that is an exorcism of King Leopold and thinks about the residue of colonialism in our everyday lives and the kind of looking inward and outward, looking inward and outward, the simultaneous looking inward and outward required to unroot the shrapnel of catastrophic rulers and events. Yeah, that piece looks really exciting. I might be saying it wrong, but on your website, it's KL2, I think it's- That's right, yep. I just wanna make sure I'm saying it correctly. Kinesa, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Andrew. And how exciting that you're graduating and starting to make work. Oh. Send me a Tell me what you're working on. What are you working on? In fact, let us end on that. What are you working on, Andrew? <laughs> I have a show called Coconuts, a comedy that I worked on that hopefully is going up in a fringe festival soon. So <gasps> And how many people are in the show? Two, just two people. One of them two might people. Just be me, so. That is very tourable. So if anybody's listening to us, there's a two-person show that is yeah. available by yeah. Andrew yeah. for touring because they're graduating. Yeah, oh my gosh. Uh, I don't know if it's truly set in yet, but <laughs> I appreciate you asking. That's awesome. That. That's super exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything, for just Thanks. the interview and being here. So Until have- next time. You can keep up with Kaneza at www.kanezashawl.com or follow her on Instagram at at Thanks for listening. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network. In association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com.